Hello and welcome to another installment of the Adventurous Investor in Conversation. This time we're talking to Charney Morris. Um, he used to be at HSBC running an absolute returns fund um, and has been running various funds in the absolute return space for many years and has also been building up quite a formidable reputation in the whole crypto space. Um, he's even got an ETP, an exchange traded product, with 21 shares, which is a combination of both uh, Bitcoin and gold. But um, in this episode, I talked to Charlie more about his overall asset allocation views and where he thinks the key markets are going. So absolutely worth listening to. Also worth checking out his website, which is over at ByteTree. That's B-Y-T-E tree, ByteTree. They have a brilliant um, newsletter called the Multi-Asset Investor. So join me as we talk about all the asset classes, including crypto and gold and U.S. equities with Charlie Morris. Charlie, um, Charlie Morris and Bite Tree, welcome. And um, I thought we'd kick, kick straight off with, the, I suppose, the $64 trillion question, which is overall for kind of risk assets, things like equities, and by default, I suppose we mean US equities because they're the largest bit of the most liquid market on earth. You bearish or bullish at the moment? Um, David, I'm bullish. I'm oh, right. Right. Why? I mean, because a lot of people are bearish at the moment, aren't they? They're all people, boring, cynical types like me are sort of going, oh, my God, we're just about to have a recession. Earnings, US corporate earnings about to get a good kick in. So why are you bullish? There's lots of reasons. I mean, I think to illustrate um, that, I'll start off by saying I've been a bear for two years. Yeah. And, um, and I've recently turned the corner. And, and that's market evidence that gets me there more than anything else. Why was I bearish beforehand? Well, the main reason was the bond yields were going up very, very aggressively, yep. and that stabilised. Why have they stabilised? Well, lots of reasons, but the big one is probably inflation, not 20%, but more like 6 and heading south. Yep. We've seen the energy prices in Europe down 80% since last August, 50% down in the last month. That's the, 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 the North Sea uh, gas price. So, you know, life's not nearly as bad as it was a few months ago when we had soaring bond yields, which caused the blow-up of the UK gilts market, all of these sorts of problems. Um, and, and so there's been some stability uh, over there. Add to that the reopening of China, which confuses our recession, because you were going to have, you know, Western world slow down at the same time, yep. and suddenly you've got this counter-cyclical force kicking in. So not, not, not simple. Um, different things happening in different places, as always. Um, but I think that the, the the extreme bear argument has been given a kicking. Yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a mega bull by any means, but I do think we've got a period of stability, and right now that means prices going up. And what I'm saying actually is more that there's a rotation within markets rather than um, a straightforward bull market, and that rotation is huge. And to illustrate that, you've got companies like Microsoft and Apple. If you add the value of those two companies together, you know in recent times you find they've been worth more than the United Kingdom stock market, which is just beyond beyond ridiculous when our cash flow, you know, our combined profits of our companies are materially larger than those two companies. Despite, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're not successful and great. This is a huge yeah. rotation out of out of uh, uh, big tech into old economy. And that old economy is not just Britain. It's Britain, it's Europe, it's Japan, it's Asia, it's emerging markets. So is this the rest of the world argument, the ROW? Yeah. Which is, yeah. So basically rotation not only out of growth, 
into value. I'm saying that with kind of air, air apostrophes, um, but but rotation out of US into rest of the world. Absolutely right. And, I, and I'd say the other point is the dollar. The dollar is hugely overvalued yeah. um, on a purchasing power parity going back half a century. Yeah. You're talking nearly 40% at one point last year. Um, it's on the way down. doesn't matter what they do to interest rates. Uh, the dollar's overpriced. And, um, you know, so you put those things together and you realise that the reasons to be really bearish a year ago are no longer uh, valid. So, yes, recessions, inverted yield curves, I see that. But are, there, is there, are some of those things going to be tempered because it's not as bad as we thought? Um, what about the other, the other big asset class, bonds? Um, I mean, I suppose uh, your, your view on anybody's view on bonds is, I suppose, has to be tempered, to use your expression, by what interest rates are going to do. Um, none of us really know what's going on in the mind of central bankers, and I'm not entirely sure central bankers know what's going on in the minds of central bankers. But um, is your sense that the consensus, which is that interest rates will probably in the US peak at about five, a little bit above, a little bit below, UK four, maybe a little bit above, maybe a bit below, and that they'll stop rising and then possibly head down, even if slowly at first. Do you think that consensus is right? Well, no, not because I know what's going to happen, but just because the consensus has never been right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because it's never, ever been right, then why do you see it's going to be right this time? So I think that's the important point there. Um, I don't know. I really don't know about bonds. I'm really, I'm really quite cautious on duration because, as you already said, you've got an inverted curve. And so there's a lot that could go, go wrong with, with, um, with duration. And at the short end, yeah, there's a bit of excitement to be had, but not much. I get that. Um, earnings may be coming under pressure, and so therefore credit, you know, I, I can see it's going up short term. But again, is it underpinned? Not really. Is it dirt cheap? Not really. The bit of the bond market I do like um, um, is is um, inflation-linked bonds, yeah, particularly in the United States. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I've been a bit of a fan of gold really since about 2018, but now I'm seeing gold very overpriced against US tips. And, of course, you know, you can lock in now one and a half, nearly 2%, uh, real yield in in tips, and that's that's a big number. You have to go back pre OA to get that. Do, do you think? Just, just just want to just dwell on tips for a second in inflation. Um, uh, only recently, Duncan McInnes over at Ruffer has been making the argument that, um, that and, and he's not the only one actually. Albert Edwards at Sock Gen has been making the same argument that inflation, as you said, might come down because of all the base effects you've already talked about, declining energy price, all that kind of stuff. But they might ratchet back up again, and we might be in a more stagflationary era. Um, just on that narrow inflation point, what? Because that, if that is the case, and none of us know, because none of us have a crystal ball that works. Um, but if we are have moved to a more stagflationary environment, there are profound consequences for lots of portfolios. Yeah, which is supposed to point rougher we're making. What do you make of that narrow point? Do you think we're we're, we're, we might get a breather, but then it, we're going to see sustained inflation pulse through, or 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 or, or just do you not know, not, like most of um, us. So I, I've studied the nineteen seventies, like like they have, and what we saw in the seventies was was inflation was volatile, and all yeah. emerging markets that have had what is inflation? It's an inefficient economy. Yeah, no inflation is a super inflation efficient economy. Sometimes it can be masked by capital flows. You know, like Switzerland. You don't really know if they're, they're, they're efficient or not, but everyone throws money at them. Yeah. It all looks great. Um, but 
But you know, and I think an economy like Japan, long term, has had lower lower, lower inflation than other places. Uh, the UK is an island off the coast of a big continental um, economic powerhouse. Our inflation has always been slightly higher than yeah. Europe because they're a bigger trading block. Of course, they're more efficient than we would be. And historically, Ireland always had higher inflation than we did because they yeah. were a small economy uh, separated by sea. So there, there is something in that. And inflation, when you lose control of it, basically tends to be volatile. Yeah. So it's not really the level so much. It's the fact that it chops and changes. And, you know, GMO, GMO being the big U.S. value manager, yeah. Yeah. Um, they had uh, this wonderful S&P valuation uh, model that they trotted out once, and it seemed to work. It probably stopped working after that paper, but, but um, <laughs> it was really good. And one of the inputs was the volatility of inflation. And so they said, so basically, what, what the conclusion being that when inflation is volatile, you don't know what's going to happen. Therefore, you've got to have a, a lower valuation on asset prices. Yeah. So do you think inflation is going to be volatile? Yes. OK, I'll answer that question. Back to tips. Um, so um, should we own tips versus gold now? Does, does effectively, are you saying that tips is a better bet than gold? Well, the valuation argument and that valuation uh, relationship between t- tips and gold goes back quite a long time. The only reason you wouldn't, the only the only reason why I'm, you know why that would be completely wrong, is because you believe something's changed in the gold market. You believe that uh, the, the U.S. Treasury, treasuries have been weaponized following the invasion of Ukraine. The Russia had its reserves uh, confiscated. That's not a very nice thing to happen. And, um, and and sort of poor form in sort of battlefield um, uh, chivalry, if you like, compared mm. to what we're used to. You know, you don't Certainly need central bank chivalry anyway. Central <laughs> bank chivalry. <laughs> and, um, it's an important point. So if you're now um, an economy or a country that, that doesn't quite agree with our values, then then you would say, well, I'm not going to park my reserves in their bonds anymore. I'd do something else. So maybe it's right that, that, that gold goes to a prolonged premium. And we saw in Q3, you know, 399 tons of gold bought by central banks. Yep. You know, the, the biggest buyers being Turkey, Uzbekistan and, uh, and Qatar. And then we, we started to see China admit to higher uh, reserves as well. So we've got all these big numbers coming through. And you kind of think, okay, if all of them are going to pile their reserves into gold at any price – then something's changed. They don't mm. have to. They don't have to obey the sort of natural forces of the tips model. And the reason why the tips model worked, by the way, is because gold and long-term tips have the same objective. Yeah, which is you know to protect you against the destruction of capital over time, uh, or the value of money over time. So um, there's a, there's complete logic there. Um, but I but I would think that tips are also going to, to you know, deliver what they deliver that contract, provided you're not an enemy, enemy of the state. So if yeah. you're if you're on the, their side, tips are great. If you're not on their side, maybe you have to go for gold. Okay, um, just going. Tips are obviously denominated dollars. So that's the segue. You sort of said that dollars are dollar. The dollar is overvalued, and I, I have to say I agree with you. Uh, and I suspect actually, even in the U.S. Federal Reserve, might agree with you as well. Um, but that's a separate issue. Um, what's undervalued? Uh, on the currency side, yeah, uh, the Japanese yen by a long way, the Swedish kroner as well. The pound was less so now, but you know, the pound whenever it's been undervalued, which has been sort of ninety two ERM, um, and, and the other great time was after the credit crisis and, and, and Brexit. You, you get these sort of brief periods uh, where it's undervalued. It tends to be in an equity bear market because the pound tends to be um, overvalued during bull markets because we're yeah. a financial centre. 
Uh, right now, the Swedish krona seems to be dirt cheap, uh, and the Japanese yen is the elephant in the room that everyone's talking about. Um, and that's that's down to, as you know, David, it's the you know yield curve control. Yeah. You try and keep the ten-year bond yield um, at levels the markets doesn't want, and and you know you get an ERM type moment where the market says no, and it, you know the, the, the Japanese got away with this for a long time for the very simple reason that everyone else had low bond yields. Yeah. Now, you know, America, Europe... Britain, but, but, I get that. But why hasn't it happened yet? Because, you know, um, you know, on, on, on UK, US government, even European government bonds, you can get pretty good yields now. Um, I, I quite like sort of long-duration US treasuries. They're paying decent yields. Why would you own Japanese um, government securities unless you had to? So no one does. I mean, it's, it's yeah. hilariously a sort of slightly liquid market. Yeah. But they are there. They are big. They are a big asset class. Mm. Um, and, and it's one of those things that, you know, some people will tell you that Japan is the most deadly country in the world. But, you know, this is a left pocket, right pocket situation. Yeah. Mm. You know, if you own a trillion in one pocket and you own a trillion in the other pocket, you know, you're, 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 you're flat. And that's kind of where Japan is. Um, and, and so they're not really. They're, they're an extremely wealthy nation. But, I, but what, what they can do is, you know, we, we've, we've learned about printing money in recent years. It's a funny old thing. You just sort of ask a computer to do it for you, and suddenly a few zeros pop up. That's the button, yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. And that's what they're doing, and they're buying all these bonds off themselves each week. Um, but I think the speculators have, have, have caught wind of this. But basically, when the, when the yield goes up on long-term Japanese debt, then that makes the yen more attractive, and so the undervaluation reverts to mean. And, and we've seen this in previous sort of cycles, like 2008 and so forth. You know, people like to borrow money in yen because the Japanese like to keep their currency soft for their exporters and so forth. And when it's payback time, which is whenever there's a, a soft economy, uh, the yen goes through the roof. Yeah. So, um, so I think that the yen's a very interesting trade right now as part but, of risk off. So if things do go wrong, then the yen goes up. Would that extend to Japanese equities? That's more confusing. So you don't want to own the bonds, you do want to own the currency. I think the Japanese equities are somewhere in the middle. Yeah. You know, it's, it's probably the banks, um, ironically, are probably in a better place than um, than the exporters, for example, which are going to suddenly you know, find themselves less competitive. But I think that it, it, it's going to be a mixed response. It was very clear once upon a time that you know, the, the yen went up and, and the Japanese stock market went down. But, but that's not really the point. We want to know is... If to take the Japanese stock market in pounds sterling and the world index in we're British and, and, and the world index in pounds sterling. And which is better? Which one do you want to work? And, and that's the question. Are Japanese equities better than the world or worse than the world? And they've been worse since 1990. Yeah. Mm. 20, we're going to the 23rd year of Japanese yeah. equity underperformance versus the world. Sorry, 33rd year. That's a hell of a long time, David. Yeah. So mm. At some point, we're expecting that to turn. And some people would say that actually Japanese equities are undervalued and it's a real opportunity because um, when they stop doing this funny money business then, and it starts to go to a sort of normal situation, then actually they'll become really attractive. Um, I'm somewhat on the fence when it comes to Japanese equities, but I'm certainly happy to own a few. Um, I just want to sort of also just deal with the issue of what, what investors actually invested practically if you're a private investor. Uh, and on your Bytree website, before we, we, we started going online, we, we showed a quite interesting ETF tool, um, which, which looks at uh, effectively a technical, correct me if I'm wrong, mainly technical analysis, but with some value kicking around as well. And you're looking at 20-day, 30-day, 200-day moving averages, and you select the ETFs. Using that tool, which I heartily recommend people go and look at, and I'll put it in the program notes. Um, what's your tool at the moment suggested they should invest in? 
in ETF land? Yeah, well, so I write a, uh, so we've got some tools on the website. Thank you for mentioning those, but we also do research. I write a thing called the, the, the multi-asset letter. And that's, that's, you know, obviously I use some of the tools that we build, but there's also, you know, proper fundamental old school kick the tires analysis. Yes. What's in the ETF? What do the individual securities look like? What's the, what's the value and so forth? And I like dividends and, and right. please allow me to tell you why. And back in 2019, I think I loathed dividends. And maybe I, was, maybe I was a bit lucky. I didn't predict COVID. But I was very sceptical about income funds at that time. You saw a lot of companies, you know, with these um, overly high payouts. The FTSE, do you remember the FTSE was very criticized for having all these big dividends yeah, yeah. Uh, for these companies that couldn't quite manage them? And then COVID came along and it was an excuse for everyone to cut their dividend, not just here, but everywhere. And and and, and um, income funds, you know, were absolutely uh, destroyed over over Q2 or Q1, Q2 of 2020. And then, you know, when you flush out the entire dividend system and companies, even companies that didn't actually need to cut their dividends, did it anyway. Um, what, what comes out of the other side of that is is dividends are probably pretty damn rock solid across the board. Yeah. Uh, and that will last. That's a force that's going to last for a few years. And so these these income funds and dividend ETFs, um, I was a bit sceptical of them at that time. Woodford was, of course, a big casualty of yep. the income fund. Um, and I think it's a really good time to be looking at dividends because they get you into value. They keep you out of growth. They keep you out of defensive. You know, what's done too well in the last two years? Mm. These sort of big, big defensive stocks and, um, uh, and gold possibly – and, and some of these, some of these things, and the dollar has done too well in recent years. And, and those are probably the areas you don't want to be. So if you can get the value and get the dividends, knowing that they've been flushed out and they're back on the way up, um, that's what I think is going to work well, regardless of whether the economy is really strong or really weak. I doubt it's really strong, but I think it might not be really weak. And therefore, you know, being paid to wait in undervalued stocks that can appreciate a little bit and you get paid, you know, a decent coupon each year. What's wrong with that? Well, and in fact, I mean, I'm a big fan of dividend aristocrats, this idea that you invest in companies that have consistently prioritized dividends over progressive dividends over a long period of time and just patently just keep sending the checks out. And in fact, in US, which is not a big dividend paying culture, um, you know, Europe's a much bigger dividend paying culture. But in fact, if you look at US ETFs, actually dividend aristocrat ETFs or, or, or more complicated dividend screens than just a simple, I'll buy the, the biggest dividend yield. They've done. They did really well in twenty two, um, and there's no reason to think that they won't do well along with buyout orientated. Sorry, buyback orientated DV, ETFs, which is roughly the same kind of idea. Um, what one of the? I suppose there's just two two questions before we finish off with with the inevitable question about crypto because we, we we can't not talk about crypto, particularly as you have a ETP that looks at the, is on the relationship between gold and and risk weighting and and Bitcoin and and all that kind of stuff. Before I get there, there are two things. Um, one of which is both equity orientated, both secular themes. So one tech and the other one is the kind of energy transition, industrial metals, decarbonization, reindustrialization, whatever word you want to use for it. So let's look at tech, for instance, first. We, we, we started off talking a bit about the big tech leviathans. Um, is it important to distinguish, do you think, between tech companies that actually are producing substantial earnings and doing reasonably well. It's an argument I would make that there, there's, a, there's a small handful of companies like Alphabet or Google, like Microsoft, that actually do make shed loads of money. Yeah. And they've made a bit less money because they're being hit by digital advertising. 
but they, they're still deeply profitable businesses. Yeah. And then there's a longer tail of tech companies. I mean, there's some shocking statistics about the number of companies, small cap tech companies, for instance, or mid cap tech companies in America that don't produce any profits. Yeah. Um, and the longer tail of companies that frankly never will have never produced. Oh, my phone's going. Um, have uh, the, the rookie error of all podcasts. Um, <laughs> that have never produced uh, profits and certainly never produced cash. And that one should distinguish between the, the cash generating tech giants and the rest. Absolutely. They're completely different animals. And I think that's another reason to be bullish. Your, your, your opening question was why, you, you know, why are you bullish? And if you take um, ARC, the, the Kathy Woods uh, yeah. non-profit yeah. tech stocks or the Goldman Sachs non-profit tech index or whatever, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's back to where it was five years ago. It went through the Around 60, 70 percent, yeah. Yeah. It went through the roof, it went all the way up to the moon and it's back come back down again. And so we flushed that out. And when did it peak? It peaked in February twenty twenty one. So yeah. that's just under two years ago. Two years is a long time for a stock market to adjust. Yeah. Um, the average age for a bear market is fourteen months. The really yeah. bad one's gone for three years. But you know, two years that'll do. And so I yep. think you've had most of the um, of, 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 of that reversal. And let's face it, that you know, most people will say happily that stocks like Peloton or Beyond Meat went up 200 times or whatever on the back of stimulus checks and this sort of thing and COVID and weird stuff. And and that's all gone away. So, you know, that, that, and that money kind of rotated into the big tech that you described with loads of profits into, into, into Apple and Google. And, and that is where I see the, the, the um, remaining high valuations. And that could take years to unwind. These stocks don't have to go straight down. They just have to go nowhere for years. Yeah. yeah. Well, Meta is a good example of that. Um, and I think the – I guess you've been right about this week, but I think that the, the canary in the coal mine is biotech because biotech also basically went into a swoon about February 21, in fact, and has spent the last two years going nowhere. And there, there is some evidence now – that that we've that we're beginning to see a kind of culling of the companies you're beginning to get valuations you know back down below net cash value so uh, i would suggest that people look at biotech as particularly one area where the, if that turns that's a that's a sentiment indicator the other one i would talk to you about about decarbonization this whole kind of industrial metals thing has come back again in the last couple of months and it's very much powering the miners yeah mm. so i watch you know funds like blackrock's world mining fund quite carefully Big, a big a big kind of agglomeration of the big mining names and um it had a bit of a rough patch at some point in 22 it's sort of come back around again and and, and in the new year predictions uh, uh, there's lots of people including me saying that you know industrial metals um everything to do with this kind of you know decarbonization reindustrialization retooling everything that's a big secular long-term ball theme it will be volatile but it's an interesting theme do you buy that argument Yes and no. I mean, uh, if I could just go to biotech, I'm glad you mentioned that because that recently went in our portfolios. Oh, right. Oh, good. So we agree. Because biotech, <laughs> biotech peaked in 2015, as you remember. Yeah. And there was yeah. a, a, that uh, Theranos. Theranos, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah. That sort of thing. And today, the biotech index is, is roughly the same level as it was eight years ago, but the sales yeah. are twice as high. Yeah. So, so it's a classic um, growth sector that's just grown into its price. Yeah. Um, on, on the on the the commodities, the metals in particular, I suppose I am in the long term bull argument. But I wouldn't say our exposure is particularly high at the moment. It's not zero, but it's not particularly high. It was high um, eighteen months ago, two years ago. We've taken a lot of profits out of commodities, and I'm sitting here right now scratching my head whether that's 
whether that's wrong. You know, should we yeah. be thinking about precious metals to industrial metals? That's one of the big questions. You know, are we getting false signals um, or, or, or not? But I say the other point is that if you look at the World Mining Index, um, it's, the, it's the same level as it was in 2011, just yeah. like emerging markets and all that. So they all go together, Europe, UK, Japan, emerging markets, mining, energy, all of these things have just done nothing in a very long time. And I think if you diversify and put them all together in the pot and diversify, you'll be fine these next few years. Yeah. Okay, I want to finish on, um, <laughs> arguably, some would say, the, we mentioned Cathy Woods and Ark and, and, the, the, and the kind of food tech guys that blew up. Well, of course, the big blow up in the last couple of months has been crypto, hasn't it? Um, that spectacular blow up. Um, now, I, I think we would both agree from different ends of the argument that it's different than the other tech company. It's a tech uh, sectors. It's got different dynamics. Um, and in fact, your ETP, which is with 21 shares, sort of looks at the dynamic, which is that relationship between gold and crypto. Because, of course, crypto is also an expression of people's desire to get away from monetary fiat, money fiat. So there's lots of other things going on in crypto than just a sort of straightforward tech bubble. Um, are we at the trough? I think so. I mean, let's break this down. I mean, if you go back to the 2013 high, which was $1,000, keep it simple, yeah. and the low was $200, again, rounding, rounding numbers. So that's an 80% fall. And then it goes up 100 times to 20,000. And it falls to 3,000. And then it goes to 68,000 and falls to 16,000. You know, 16,000 is roughly where the high was in 2017. So you kind of had a flat period over over five years, and it went to 20,000, actually it went to 19-something, but it was only there for a couple of days, and so um, uh, you know, it, it, it's just done what it does, every fourth year you have this four-year cycle that seems to keep on coming around, every 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 up year in the four-year cycle, all you can read about is how the four-year cycle's never coming back, and then it comes straight back <laughs> <laughs> and so and it, it probably relates to the halving cycle, we'd be in a Bitcoin supply halves in uh, April next year so, you know, if it was stupid and dead and worthless, then, then it would be stupid and dead and worthless. And, and can I just ask on that point, the stupid, dead and worthless argument? Uh, I've been wrestling with this and lots of people have been wrestling. I mean, Noah Smith, the Bloomberg columnist, wrote a really good piece about it, um, saying, you know, is it fundamentally a pointless exercise? Yeah. Because if it is a pointless exercise, then it could go all the way to zero. And, and Noah Smith, who's by no means not a, a supporter of, of crypto, I think made some very powerful arguments, which I'd agree with, which partly we look at things through the, the, the prism of the developed world. If you live in Zimbabwe, Venezuela, other countries, you probably think of it very differently. Um, there's also the fact that there's this whole you know, decentralized finance stuff. It is, it is the use case still there, both as a currency, yeah, because it's, it's got its currency uh, kind of functionality and then it's got its kind of DeFi, you know wider system functionality are both of those uh foundations still there there's a lot going on there's a lot going on in crypto and um i would say that going back to the beginning we just had this attempt to replicate gold um over the internet digitally yeah. and blockchain enabled that to happen you know, what is gold? Gold is the original fintech. I mean, gold, you can make the same arguments about gold being pointless. Um, but for 5,000 years... And Warren Buffett has made that argument, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does it very amusingly. You know, you go to Africa or someplace and stand around 
um, the, 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 the vault and guard it when it's just been in the ground for thousands of years. Fine. But he's also made the argument about Bitcoin, where, where, he, where he showed why he didn't understand Bitcoin. Because he said, I wouldn't buy all the Bitcoin for $25. And I went to his accent again. Now, why would it be a really bad idea to buy the Bitcoin? Because you destroyed the network. So the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is zero. Okay, that's yeah. obvious. But the network value is enormous. It's yeah. a bit like if you go onto uh, WhatsApp or, or whatever have you, if you owned all the accounts, you'd only text yourself. If you owned all the telephones, you'd only call yourself. The idea, the value in Bitcoin is his ability to exchange with others. Yeah. Uh, and that is hugely valuable. And we look back at things like WhatsApp, um, when Zuckerberg bought it, you know, 10 years ago for 18 billion. At the time he went, God, he's crazy. And nowadays everyone thinks, I wish I'd done that. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, what a great investment. I personally think that's the most valuable bit of his portfolio at the moment. Probably. Yeah. And, and so this idea of networks, which have been enabled by the internet, um, are, are extremely powerful. And to your point, you know, to some, if you're living in Venezuela, you have a different opinion of Bitcoin. If, you, if, you're, uh, if you're in Nigeria or Ukraine, Russia, you might have a different view. If you're living in a city like, uh, like London, New York, Tokyo, you, you would have a different view and might see it as part, you know, part of the speculation. But, but that's fine. That provides liquidity. Other people will see it as mathematically important. Others would say, it's a, oh, what, what, you know, what do we do with surplus wind on a windy day? You know, you can't you can't store this electricity. Ah, oh, but we could mine Bitcoin. We could store the money, uh, and that would that would be useful for for funding green projects. You know, this idea that we could actually have cyclical demand for energy, useful demand for energy. There are so many useful things about it, and then you've got clever people like um, Alan Howard. And I don't think many people would think he was stupid. Um, no. He's a big fan of, of Brevin Howard. Of Brevin Howard, you know, he's multi-billionaire, and and he he's got a big bet on this space because he thinks it's how the future of the financial system will operate. Mm. And, and I share that view. I think that the, what we're doing is we're building something. It is Wild West, but that's the regulator's fault. It's government's fault for staying out of the way and just trying to shut it down and failing. By the way, yeah. Um, and and so what you what you what you've got is a, is, is is a potential to have the tokenization of everything. Every bond we've discussed. Every currency, every share, every ETF will end up being tokenized in some way and will be driven by this space. Your Hargreaves Lansdowne or AJ Bell portfolio um, will be will be backed by crypto. I, I'm not talking about big. Uh, I'm not talking about Bitcoin. You know, I'm not saying everyone's going to own Bitcoin. No. The infrastructure around that, the digital. Yes, this decentralized finance that this kind of this and Web three and various other terms that get used yeah. to describe it. So you still think that 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 functionality, that foundation, is there? I think that that's the end game for this. And, you know, it's obviously not ready today. It's so obviously not ready today. But um, it's pretty impressive what's happened. And many of the skeptics, you know, Isabella Kavinska from the Financial Times, who's now independent, she's changed her tone from just sort of laughing at it to being pretty constructive and saying things like perpetual swaps are really quite impressive that come out of the, you know, there's been lots of innovations uh, in crypto that have been amazing. But all the things that have gone wrong, wrong have been bad people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that's true. and by the way, that, that could be equal truth equities. So, so you know, systems, you know, it's been, it's been bad people. It's a real shame. And, you know, regulators, I think that if they embrace this a bit, a little, um, there's a classic, you know, if you go back, David, to the 90s, you know, all I remember is you know, people sort of turning their nose up at these internet stocks. Yeah. Of course it was amusing that, 
pass.com was worth a trillion dollars or whatever. I mean, of course, it was quite funny but, and, and ridiculous at the same time. But everyone knew it. Um, you know, no, no one took it seriously. But everyone knew that it was going somewhere. There was a vision of, of where this internet thing would, would go. And it just went much further than we ever thought it would. would you know, it's, it's, the internet today is much better than we ever mm. thought it would be back in the late 90s. And so I think that's quite an important um, uh, point. But, you know, back then people would say, oh, I like the internet thing, but I don't like these internet stocks. And today that you'll hear them say, oh, I like the blockchain, but I don't like crypto. And you say, well, how are you going to get crypto without, how are you going to get blockchain without crypto? These are the projects. You know, blockchain mm. doesn't build itself. It's people, it's innovation, it's teams. Mm. Um, and why have we got crypto? And this is the final point. You know, you probably wish you'd never asked me about this, David. In a minute. <laughs> but, but, um, but, but why have we got crypto? Again, regulators. I mean, how many stocks did we have on the London stock market 20 years yeah. ago compared to today? How many yeah. stocks were in the US stock market compared to today? I haven't got the number on the top of my head, but I think we're back. There, there, were, there were a lot more. <laughs> a lot more stocks back in the day. And, you know, if you were a youngster with a project and a bit of uh, entrepreneurial spirit, you could go and get an IPO where you could fund your company, you could do it. But now you can't. Now you need sort of 10-year track record and the ESG, 15 pages on your policy. Yeah, yeah. You know, board of diverse people from all over the place. And it's just absurd. You know, you're, try, you're, you're trying to build a young business and you've got this sort of, you know, this huge burden to, to yeah. comply with. You'll never get an IPO away as a, as, a, as a young, enthusiastic entrepreneur. And indeed, all the great companies that come through Silicon Valley, they didn't even hit the market until, until they're worth tens of billions. Yeah. So the world's changed. And crypto still offers a young entrepreneur an opportunity to um, get cracking. And I must admit, the, 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 the where I sort of end up agreeing with you is, is that capitalism has a fantastic track record of throwing money and very talented people at something, of which 95% of it is in, is completely rubbish, never gets anywhere, fails, never generates any profits for anybody. But the 5% sticks to the wall and the 5% grows and grows and grows. And that's the internet. That's 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 pretty much every big capitalist created destruction impulse. It yeah. happens phenomenally good at that and and the the the, the trick is to know um to know the businesses that succeed but if only we knew the answer to that one charlie then we'd all be very rich at each individual it would be easy wouldn't it and everyone says let's go and choose the five percent but the smart people don't even bother they, they say well i know i can't choose the five percent yeah. so i try and get i'll go to the 30 percent i just try and avoid the total rubbish you know yeah and yeah yeah absolutely and that's the way it works. Okay, Charlie, one last question then on the crypto thing. Um, this is my kind of left field question just to leave everybody with. What's one thing in the last three or four months which, which has happened that you think is really interesting and that you would recommend that people just look at, take some time to look at it and think, hmm, there's something there that's really very, very interesting? Um, there, I'll put you on the spot. My apologies. So that, that, that's, that's fine. I mean, there's so many things you, I could answer that, but I'm going to stick with Bitcoin because it's the big... It's the big one. And it's the world's second most liquid alternative asset. Its value is its liquidity. Its value is its network. If it dried up and stopped trading, it would be worthless. You can cut and paste the Bitcoin code, um, and, and you and I uh, can, can launch our own um, uh, a sort of crypto thing. No one would care. No one would trade it. And, mm. and it would be worthless. But, but Bitcoin isn't because it's the one that's got that respect. So I'll go and look at our data, our live data on com, and click terminal. It's free of charge and watch that blockchain tick away. And, you know, I, I, I challenge you to think that thing's worthless. If you actually go and look at the, look at the stats, look at it in real time.
crazy every day, every day, every every minute of every day uh, for fourteen years. This thing is just purring. Very interesting, Charlie. Charlie Morris, thank you very much.